Um, and so now I feel very privileged to um, welcome Professor Colin Calloway, who is Dartmouth's John Kimball 1943 Professor of History and a Professor of Native American Studies. He received his PhD from the University of Leeds in England in 1978. And after teaching for seven years um, at the University of Wyoming, he came to Dartmouth in 1990, first as a visiting professor and then as a permanent member of Dartmouth's faculty. Professor Calloway has chaired the Native American Studies program, and his leadership has been instrumental in establishing the program as one of the preeminent academic um, Native study programs in the United States. He's a prolific author. He's written what's considered, you know, the history of Native Americans at Dartmouth. He, um, one of his books was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, and his latest book, The Indian World of George Washington, the First President, the First Americans, and the Birth of a Nation, was a finalist for the 2018 National Book Award. So um, today, Professor Calloway will present on the founding and history of Dartmouth as a school for Native Americans. Professor Calloway. Good afternoon, history nerds. I like to do that in class because my students get really uncomfortable. <clears throat> so um, Beth and I met for the first time today, so we haven't had any chance to sort of conspire and collaborate on what we're going to say. But I just received a, a big glossy book from Dartmouth kind of commemorating its 250th. Some of you will probably get it. And it's a big celebration of Dartmouth, and there's all kinds of essays in there, and I was leafing through it. And it took me aback because I'd forgotten I contributed a short essay. And it was there, and the title in big block capitals was The Betrayal of Samson Ockham. Right? So, <laughs> thank you. So, um, Again, echoing Beth, history is not the same as the past. History is the stories that we tell about the past, how we reconstruct the past, how we research it. <clears throat> and that's true of nations, and I suppose it's true of colleges. Right? But if history is the stories that we tell about the past, who decides whose stories get to be told and whose stories get left out? And I think that's very much the case at, at Dartmouth, too. And my approach, thinking about this, I think I'm supposed to be talking about the founding of Dartmouth. Basically, my <clears throat> approach to this is going to be that it took Dartmouth at least 200 years to found a school dedicated to the education of Native Americans. So I've written a lot of books, and this is the only book I've ever written that I never run wanted to write. Um, this book came about because of a series of events at Dartmouth in the fall of 2006, which were just horrible events targeting Native American students, Native American people. We get that kind of thing at Dartmouth once in a while, usually in the fall, but this was a, a, a particularly bad year. And the college administration didn't really know what to do or didn't feel it had to do anything. 
And so those of us on the Native American Council took out a two-page letter in the Dartmouth newspaper basically saying, this is what's going on. For evil to triumph, all you need to have happen is good men do nothing, et cetera, et cetera, and then we all signed it. And I was the only non-Native signing it. Um, and if your name is Callaway, you tend to come close to the beginning of the alphabet, too. Uh, and I was chair of Native American Studies. So I spent quite a bit of time during that period in President Jim Wright's office, uh, who was concerned as a historian and as somebody who had been instrumental in forming these programs. And at one point, Jim said to me, at least this is how I remember it, you know, part of the problem is that people don't understand the Native American history of this, of this college. And he looked at me and said, somebody needs to write that book. <laughs> Well, he's a historian, right? <laughs> Probably thought he was too busy being president. Anyway, um, so I did, and it, it was actually a good thing to do. Okay, that's it. So this, of course, is a portrait you see a lot at Dartmouth, a portrait of Eliezer Wheeler. At least that's what Dartmouth wants you to believe. It's actually a photograph of Dick Cheney wearing a wig, if you look closely. <laughs> But we've heard a lot about his relationship with Samson Ockham, and as you heard from Beth, Samson Ockham was a remarkable man, period. Not a remarkable Mohegan, not a remarkable Indian, a remarkable man by anybody's standards. And <clears throat> he wasn't the first Native American to visit England. Right? Neither was Pocahontas. There'd been Indian people in England long before that, kidnapped victims, uh, and in the period between Pocahontas and, and Ockham, there'd been... Cherokee visitors, uh, Mohegan visitors, again in the 70s. English people had seen Indians before, right? but never a minister. Right? And so this was the real Paul. That here was a kind of a, an example, an exemplar. Right? This, with the right education, is what could be done for these backward, primitive people that Beth was talking about, those kinds of attitudes, could be raised up to the level of Samson Arkham. So this was a very uh, powerful message to take to England to raise that money for Wheelock's grand design for the college that he had, for the school that he had here, and also for his vision for school at, <coughs> at Dartmouth. And Ockham raises twelve thousand pounds. Delivers was it close to four hundred sermons. As somebody said twelve thousand pounds, whatever it translates to today. Somebody back then described it as a bushel of money. Right? And it's basically the seed money for Dartmouth College. Right? And Wheelock moves himself, his family, his slaves, a couple of Indian students, <coughs> up to Dartmouth. Right? Commemorated in, in this etching. I don't know if you can see this, though, but this is a, a map that I made for the book. <coughs> um, Wheelock talked about a school in the heart of the Indian country, which, of course, if you travel up to Hanover today, you don't really think of it as Indian country. It's, it is Abenaki country, still unceded Abenaki land. But it's perhaps difficult for us to, to think now of that place as it was then. <clears throat> in the 1760s, Hanover was still on the sort of northern frontier. Kind of beyond there was Canada. Right? Beyond there lay dragons. Right? <laughs> but, 
Wheelock was really establishing a school on the Connecticut River when he moved there with Haudenosaunee country to the west, Abenaki country, and you see all those place names which the English, uh, the English had replaced and then this, this English guy re-replaced them with original <laughs> native names. Right? <clears throat> and Ockham's first students were from southern, from southern New England. Right? The three students who graduated from Dartmouth by 1800, only three. Right? Daniel Simon has Narragansett, uh, <clears throat> Louis Vincent who's Huron, and Peter Quanapart uh, uh, from Stockbridge, right? only three. But Wheelock really thought that southern New England Indians had had too much contamination by the English. And he looked to Iroquois country, to the Haudenosaunee people, for students, <clears throat> and sent some of his recruiters out there, including his own son, right? which didn't help because he was a wingnut. And the Oneidas <coughs> and uh, Onondagas treated him as such. But he was trying to recruit Iroquois, partly because he thought they were the appropriate stamp students, but also he's not simply thinking in educational terms. He's thinking in terms of... Um, Colonialism, strategy, defense, right? The Iroquois are the major Native American power and one of the major powers, period, in the Northeast. They would represent an important buffer against the French and allies, etc. Time's up, so. <laughs> <laughs> and at Dartmouth, the college not only produced. Um, educated Indian people, again with the idea that these people would go out to Indian country and educate and missionize Indians. They also had <coughs> produced um, young white guys to do this. this. I just wanted to show you this guy, because an interesting guy, his papers are at Dartmouth College. This is Silas Dinsmore, class of 1791, um, yeah, I think. He <coughs> is appointed by George Washington as agent to the Cherokees. And then he becomes an Indian agent for the Creek. Uh, seems to have been kind of a nice guy. Um, but he, too, is a person of his time. So for him, doing the right thing for Cherokees and Creeks means getting them to stop being Indian, to become Christian, to take up a new way of life, etc. The reason I will show him is because <coughs> there's, a, there's, there's a line in the in the papers that talks about him. Um, he ran in with Andrew Jackson, took Andrew Jackson on, so I said, I'm okay, he's, he's a good guy. And there's a line in the papers where it says that he was in, embroiled in this dispute and he was wounded in a duel fought by gentlemen sitting at table, right? which I think is great. You know, it's, none of that walk 10 paces, turn and fire. Right? You just pull your gun and... Right? <coughs> said to class when I was doing that, I looked at the football guys on the back row and I said, you think beer pong is wild? <laughs> but what happens <clears throat> is that the kind of catchment area for native students changes, right? From southern New England to Iroquois country, and then increasingly, Wheelock looks north. Right? He looks to Odenak, which is an Abenaki village on the <coughs> St. Lawrence River, and to Ganawagi, Mohawk village, on the river. Those communities and other communities on that river had grown up as French mission villages. Right? So a lot of these native people are Catholic. So Abenaki, a lot of them have French, French names. Um, but Wheelock's thinking was 
tweaked by something else. In the French and Indian wars, as they're called, Indian people from those communities raided down the Connecticut River to places like <coughs> Connecticut and Massachusetts, took captives. Some of those captives they killed, some of those captives they ransomed to France. A lot of those captives they took home and adopted so that they became, through that ritual of adoption, Abenaki or Mohawk, and then had children who might have been uh, of English blood, in some cases 100% of English blood, whatever that means, but grew up 100% Abenaki or Mohawk. Wheelock knew about that, and his thinking was that <clears throat> these Indians have more English blood in them, so they will be more suitable and better prepared for an English education. Right. So, <clears throat> with that catch, and from the late 18th, well into the 19th century, most of the students who go to Hanover are Abenaki. You won't get that so much if you look just at the list of students that attend Dartmouth College. But if you look at the students who attend Moore's Charity School, which is still going well into the 19th century, lots of Native students go to that school. Lots of Native students go to, to Hanover without really any intention of becoming a Dartmouth student, getting a Dartmouth degree. They'll get a couple of years of education, maybe go home and start a school, and that kind of thing. <clears throat> so, Ockham and Wheelock fell out, obviously. Ockham came back. The school that he'd envisioned was not the school that became the reality. The Dartmouth Charter, when it was written, <coughs> says that this is a school for the education uh, <coughs> of the, Indian, the native youth of this country and others. And it became heavily of others and not so much of native people. And that was particularly the case through the 19th century where you look and find you're really looking at individual Indians. Um, compared now at Dartmouth, where you know, maybe 200 student, Native students, in the 19th century, if you were a Native student at Dartmouth, there was a good chance you were it. You may be the only one. But some of those people did remarkable things and used their Dartmouth education in very interesting ways. Uh, ways. So I wanted to just <coughs> share uh, a few of these people with you that um, struck me of interest. This is a guy by the name of Maris Bryant Pierce. He's a Seneca. And he's a Dartmouth in the, about 1840. And he spends a lot of his time at Dartmouth fighting against the fraudulent treaty of Buffalo Creek in 1838, which <coughs> which is a horrible treaty, even compared to all the other treaties, it's a horrible treaty. And one of the reasons that he's able to do that is that Dartmouth, even then, had a weird academic schedule in which students could be not there a lot of the time. <laughs> so he was sometimes in Washington, sometimes out in New York, lobbying against, against this treaty. Um, and it's a good example, I think, <coughs> that even then, Native parents who sent their children to Dartmouth and Native students who attended Dartmouth <coughs> were, still, were already using the education for their own purposes. I mean, we, we all understand that when Wheelock was talking about <coughs> uh, educating Indians, he was talking about essentially de-educating Indians 
and re-educating them as Christian English people. There's not really any idea that there's a, there could be an exchange of, of views here, etc. Now, some of these people are funded. Now, we were talking at the table before about we all hear this. Well, don't, don't native students go to Dartmouth free? Right? Never have, never did, right? never will probably. Right? <laughs> <coughs> wasn't the case. But the portrayal of Samson Ockham, I think, was partial. Right? I'm English and Scottish. Right? The English betrayed him, not the Scots. Right? <laughs> and I actually didn't know this really until I got into doing the research for the book. When Ockham was, and England and Scotland, by the way, are different places, right? In fact, in a few years, they might be very different places. Right? <laughs> but most of the money Ockham raised in England, right? And that war money was overseen by a committee headed by Lord Dartmouth, etc. And that's the money that went to build the first Dartmouth Hall and all that kind of stuff. That was what <coughs> Ockham was complaining about, right? Because Wheelock's view and subsequent Dartmouth president view was that, okay, so we build a, <coughs> build a college, we build a lecture hall, we appoint a professor. Right? Any native student who happens to wander through class is gonna benefit from that, so yeah, we're doing it. Right? Well, not so much. But the Scots are a little tighter with their money, shall we say? Right? And the Scottish money was overseen by the Society in Scotland for Propagating Christian Knowledge, which had been founded in Edinburgh in 1701, I think, as a missionary and civilizing force to civilize and missionize the wild barbarian people in the West, <coughs> which was my mom's people. These are Highland Scots, right? That's how it started out, to to bring that mission to them. And then it just kept on trucking across the Atlantic and do the same thing for Indian people. Right? The, the Scottish society said that money was given for the education of native students and we're gonna hold you to that. Every Dartmouth president, I think from Wheelock up until the 20th century, tried to wriggle out of that commitment and the Scots refused. So one of the great things that I found when I was doing this, this research for this book in Rona Library was to find, uh, to go through account books, ledger books, and also just little chits of paper, right? Because Dartmouth had to keep an accurate, detailed accounting of every penny that it spent of that Scottish money for the education of native students. So I always like to say that it was, it was the Scots that kept Dartmouth in the Indian education business. <laughs> and you learn a lot from that because it not only tells you what's, what's been spent, but what it's been spent on. Firewood, candles, bows for hair, you know, buckles for shoes, all kinds of things. So you get insights into the, the life of, of the people. So a lot of these guys, and this guy actually went to Thetford Academy, slightly up the, up the river uh, before Dartmouth, are getting that kind of support. And then Indian people, students, start to arrive from west of the Mississippi. This is a guy by now, uh, <coughs> Joseph uh, Pitchland Folsom, who's Choctaw. 
And he's a real interesting guy because there's a memorandum of his where he wrote an account of his, kind of his life coming to Dartmouth. And he's from Oklahoma, right? So he comes to Dartmouth by taking wagons and steamboats down the Red River to New Orleans, up the Mississippi, up the Ohio, to Cincinnati, across country. By the time he gets to Boston, he's got mumps, right? And then he gets a coach to Concord, and then a coach from Concord to Hanover, and just about dies when he gets there. And he stays there <laughs> 10 years, because he first comes to the charity school to get the education that he, they think he needs before he's ready for, for Dartmouth. And he's funded heavily by, by the Scots. But interestingly, now we're getting students who are much better prepared for Dartmouth than previous students. Why? Choctaw, Cherokee, <coughs> Greeks, these are the people who were called by the Americans the five civilized tribes. And when those peoples were removed, forcibly removed after the Indian Removal Act of 1830, they took with them <coughs> their traditional cultures, their kinship relations, their language, etc., but also their written constitution, their written language, their <coughs> um, schools that they had established. So the first co-educational schools west of the Mississippi are Choctaw and Cherokee. I think second or third tuition free schools in the country are Choctaw and Cherokee. So you get this odd situation where by the time white settlers arrive in that area, they're trying to get their white American kids into Native American schools. Right? They're bribing coaches. They're <laughs> that kind of thing. So when these, these kind of students start arriving in Dartmouth, it's, it's, it's perhaps less of a culture shock than it is for, for some others. Now, this is an interesting guy. I uh, don't know very much about him. All I know is that he's Blackfoot, Blackfeet, and that he arrived at Dartmouth in 1870, the first Blackfoot student to attend Dartmouth. His name is Robert Hawthorne. The reason he's interesting is, or the reason he's interesting to me. So he's actually not from Montana. I think he grows up in Kansas. But what's happening in Montana in 1870? In 1870, American cavalry perpetrate what's called the Marias River Massacre, where after a couple of young Blackfeet guys kill uh, some white settlers, the army goes out in pursuit to track these guys to the village and attack the village. And the American commander, a guy by the name of Baker, who some people say was intoxicated at the time, or all the time, <coughs> attacked the village and it was the wrong village. These young guys were from Mountain Chief's village. The village that they attacked was Heavy Runner's village. They attracted in dead of winter. The Blackfeet in 1869-70 were hit by smallpox. So they found a village in dead of winter with people <coughs> suffering from or recovering from smallpox and perpetrated a massacre. The official count is 173 people. That's, a heavy, that's heavily a, a low count because, for one reason, 
Baker said in his official report, after they destroyed the village, out of humanity, he let the surviving women and children go. This is Montana in the dead of winter. These people have had smallpox. You've now built, burnt their homes, destroyed their food, and you let them go. Even the New York Times picked up on that one. Right? What must it have, how must it have felt for a young Blackfoot person to be arriving at Dartmouth to be receiving the education of American civilization when that's what was going on at home? This guy would have felt the same way. This is Charles Eastman, probably Dartmouth's uh, most famous uh, alum. Actually, until now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Eastman was Dakota, which is Eastern Sioux. Right? So he grew up in sort of Minnesota. His dad was caught up in the Great Sioux Uprising, as it's called in Minnesota, which resulted in 38 uh, Dakota people being hanged at once at Mankato, biggest mass execution in American history. But his father, after that, said, we've got to, go, we've got to walk the white man's work. We'll be like a hobbled pony if we don't learn how to walk this route. So Charles Eastman, or Hiesa, <coughs> went to school. He went to several schools in the Midwest. He then made his way to Hanover. First of all, he went to Kimball Union Academy, and then he attended Dartmouth, and he graduated in 1887. Uh, Let me just say, I forget. Yeah, here he is at a reunion. I was wondering if I had... There's a picture of him on the steps. I think it's maybe of somewhere like Silsby Hall. It's, it's Charles Eastman and the rest of the football team, and they've, got, they've all got their shirts off. Right? Unlike Dartmouth today... There's no problem identifying which one is Charles Eastman. Right? It's just he's the only non-bright white guy. Um, but he graduated in 87, went to medical school at Boston, and then after that went back <coughs> to Indian country to the Pine Ridge Reservation where he served as a physician. So he was there in December 1890 when the Wounded Knee Massacre happens. And he goes out onto the field not a battlefield, onto the field, after there's been a blizzard, so those people who weren't killed initially but died from exposure and freezing, and talks about walking miles from where the shooting started and seeing women and children who had been executed military style, right? like we saw at Christchurch, New Zealand, same kind of thing. Right? And finding a baby with a beaded bonnet with an American flag on it. Right? And he says in his writings, it was a hard thing for me who'd had the benefit of American civilization and the best education to basically see American civilization at work. Right? So there's this tension and this conflict, I think, for native students then. And I think some of that remains. This is an interesting guy, too. They're all interesting. Jack Tortez Meyer. Dartmouth dropout. He was there for a year. What happened was he was a Kawia. <coughs> he was an a athlete. And he was doing exhibition baseball, I think, in Arizona. When a Dartmouth alum from Denver saw him, said, hey, you're pretty good, Indian. Do so you want to go to Dartmouth? I think it's a school that will 
you know, would be interesting for you. And, he's, and, the, and the alum said, and Tortoise says, hmm, let me get my glove. Right? So the Dartmouth Alumni Club of Denver, <coughs> and I suggest you don't emulate this, right? raised money for his train ticket, money to get him to school, forged a high school diploma. That, that's the bit you shouldn't emulate. Right? And sent him off to Dartmouth. Right? So he lasted a year, uh, and then there was a sort of mutual agreement, I suppose, that he should leave. <coughs> um, he went on to play for the New York Giants. I think they run, uh, won three or four national pennants. Right? I'm talking like I understand this game. I don't know. <laughs> and then the Dodgers. Right? Scored lots of goals for the Dodgers, too. Um, and in later life, <coughs> he wrote, and he said, one of the few regrets in life that he has was that he didn't graduate college, but this is what he said. Let me, I copied this just so I could read it for you because you'll like this. He said, um, but you know, Dartmouth is just like the giants. Once a giant, always a giant. Once a Dartmouth, always a Dartmouth. You never lose that affection for the, <coughs> for, for the old school. Regardless if you just get in there and get a cup of coffee. <laughs> they instill that spirit into you that lasts. Dartmouth men are very, very close all over the world. They'll never turn you down. Um, interesting sort of prologue to this. Um, I was sitting in Jim Wright's office at one, one point, and I'm not sure if he knew that Jack Tortez was a native or even a native student. And I'm looking, and he, Jim Wright was a, a baseball nut, and he had uh, those baseball cards. One of them was Jack Tortez Meyer. Right? Mm -hmm. And in the course of writing that book, I'd been in contact with his family, particularly his niece. And when I told them that the president of Dartmouth had on his desk a baseball card, a picture of the guy who'd never been able to... She was chuffed, I guess. I mean, she was tearing up. It was great. Um, so there have been a lot of interesting guys, including this guy, another guy who didn't graduate, Ralph Walking Stick. And I think of his because he's the father of the famous Cherokee artist, <coughs> Kay Walking Stick, who, when she came to Dartmouth a lot of years ago, some years ago now, I was able to show her file. He had an interesting life. He dropped out of Dartmouth to go and f serve in, the, in World War I. He joined the YMCA and, by some reason, doing that, found himself in the British Army in Mesopotamia during the war. <laughs> and then came back, didn't come back to, grad, uh, to Dartmouth, came back, uh, went back to uh, Oklahoma and had, I guess, pretty much a, a difficult life. Um, Bill William Cook, a decorated flyer in the Second World War. This is a photograph of him and his wife on the Dartmouth campus in the late 40s, I guess, with a cradle board Right, this is his mohawk, this kind of woggy mohawk, with a cradle board that apparently they made based on a cradle board that was in the Hood Museum. Tragically, he was called back to service, I guess, during the Korean War and was killed in a, in a sort of training mission flying uh, again. And then there's this stuff, right? So Dartmouth is founded as a school for Native Americans, but throughout most of the 19th century, there are precious few, if any, Native Americans. And so Dartmouth starts to create these traditions 
probably loosely connected to the fact that this was a school ostensibly established for Native Americans. So you get various traditions that, right, and of course, the mascotting and the caricaturing of Indian people. Right? And I've had, you know, over the years, had to have lots of, lots of talks, sometimes with Dartmouth students, but also with <coughs> older generations, say, of Dartmouth alum. And often I've had people say to me, but what we're doing is honoring them. We're honoring Native Americans. Really? I think offense is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. Right? If somebody's told you what you're doing is offensive, you don't get to claim that it's not offensive. Right? You know. This is not a Dartmouth student, but this is a guy that I have often quoted, <coughs> particularly, I suppose, in um, presentations with potential Dartmouth alumni do donors. Right? This is Luther Standing Bear. He didn't go to Dartmouth. He went to Carlisle Indian School, a boarding school. In many ways, a horrific place. Uh, and he went on to become a writer, starred in B-movies and things. And his writings, I think, are very free from bitterness and resentment. But there's a beautiful passage in his writings where he says, he's looking back on his time at Carlisle, and you could put Dartmouth there instead. He said, we went to school, Indian students went to school to learn by rote what the white people wanted us to learn. And our history and our culture and our ways of knowing and our songs and stories, the product of thousands of years of living on this continent, were ignored. And what he laments about that is he basically says, what an opportunity missed. What if we had, instead of trying to replace Native American ways of knowing and wisdom with Anglo-American ways of knowing and wisdom, we tried to merge them together? And if we'd done that, what a school could have been established, a truly American school? And I would like to think that what we've been doing at Dartmouth in the past 30, 40 years is more toward that. Because it wasn't until 1970 when President John Kemeny said, college is 200 years old. It was ostensibly founded as a school for the education of Native Americans. It's time we began to meet that pledge. And so he instructed admissions to come out with 15 Indian students by the fall. And they had to scramble. So there were <coughs> difficult early times. Uh, and I think some of the early students had a, uh, a difficult time. Um, but again, a lot of Dartmouth's story is the story of the students who went there <coughs> and what they did afterwards. Right? In some ways, I would say Dartmouth did not succeed, has not succeeded for a long time on its mission of educating Indian people. But Indian students and Indian al alumni have made that success for Dartmouth. People like Louise Erdrich. I told, we didn't get to talk earlier, but yeah, so. people like Sarah Harris, right? <coughs> and these, this is one of my favorite pictures. I took this photograph of a group of Navajo uh, young women on graduation a uh, long time ago now, 14 years ago. 
but a situation where now <coughs> there's a native community at Dartmouth, right? and there's a native community outside Dartmouth. There's a Native American alumni network. Since 19, up, well I said, first 30 years of Dartmouth's existence, the college graduated three Native Americans by 1800, right? Since 1970, the college has graduated in excess of 1100 from every tribe from Abenaki to Zuni, which means that there's a, there's a Dartmouth Native American network out there independent of Dartmouth doing amazing things. And Dartmouth is now much more committed, much more visible, much more responsible in its uh, inclusion of Native American people, Native American, uh, see the guy in the white jacket, so it's John around him. Um, <clears throat> so that you even have, this was uh, President Kim's uh, inauguration drumming group. Uh, there's now at the uh, at graduation, somebody reads on, on the program, there's that Dartmouth pledge of what it was supposed to be all about. And it's as if now at 250 years, we've come to the point where we say, okay, we're finally beginning to make up for lost ground. But this is the 250th anniversary. So a number of us at Dartmouth have actually been, have proposed to the college okay, what's the next 250 years going to look like? What about instead of just bringing native students from Indian country to Dartmouth, educating them, and then letting them go out there and do great things, that Dartmouth pivot and establish and build a new set of relationship with native communities out there so that the kind of vision <coughs> that... Wheelock had <coughs> and Ockham had would be magnified and multiplied, and it would maybe be more like the vision that Luther Standing Bear had, right? So that Native communities <coughs> and an Ivy League community can collaborate on things of shared interest and importance <coughs> and learn from each other as we move forward. Uh, so we'll see how that goes, but I've run over my time as well, I think, and thank you very much for listening.